So this is God's word, Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that as we look into this psalm, uh, that you'd give us eyes to see the things that you have uh, laid up here, that we would uh, find help uh, in our uh, walk with you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would show us uh, more of your greatness, more of your glory, more of your power, and that through that, that we would be transformed so that we can be people who, who do indeed rejoice in all that you have given to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now I have a question to start with, and that is, <clears throat> what is, uh, sorry, yeah, what is the Christian life supposed to feel like? Okay, if you're a believer, what are you supposed to feel? And that might sound like a strange question, especially if you're, um, you know, one of those people who aren't into um, feelings and things. Uh, but it is a real question, and it's a question that we can actually ask from time to time. Now, if I'm a believer, what am I supposed to be feeling? Or perhaps the way we, we're more likely to ask the question is, you know, if I'm a Christian, why am I feeling the way I do? See, what is, what is it supposed to feel like as a believer in Jesus? And see, this is where the Psalms are so helpful to us because the Psalms actually capture so beautifully what life for the believer actually does feel like uh, they show us what emotions we will experience. And Psalm 126, it's especially helpful in this regard because perhaps more than any other psalm, it shows us just how wide the range of emotions are in the Christian life. Uh, and not only that, it shows us how we are to, uh, you know, what we are to do with our emotions. And so we're going to explore that topic uh, in this psalm. And there's three parts to the psalm. The psalm shows us, firstly, a joy beyond our wildest dreams. It shows us a sorrow that's almost the stuff of nightmares. But it also shows us how to turn sorrow into joy. So let's look at those three things. First, let's look at this uh, a joy beyond our wildest dreams. And we see that in verses 1 to 3. Uh, here it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. So here the writer is describing a very cherished memory. This is a memory of a time when the Lord acted in some incredible way to restore his people. Uh, a restoration of um, Zion. And so it was something that at the time, 
It was completely unexpected. It was so incredible that it's, it, it, it was the stuff dreams were made of. You know, it says we were like those who dream. And verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says that, that what happened was so extraordinary that it was not only published in the local newspapers, but it was broadcast across the international spectrum because the word on the street and the word going around was, well, what does it say? The Lord has done great things for them. See, the nations are looking on, saying, wow, look at that. Look at what God did. And the writer agrees, verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Uh, so what, what event is the psalm talking about? And we're not entirely sure because there are many times where the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion uh, in this way. Uh, for example, if you've ever read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, you'll know of that time of uh, history where after Israel had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, God in his grace brought the people home. You know, he brought them out of captivity in, from Babylon back into Jerusalem where they rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the temple. And that, at that time, that would have seemed like a dream come true. Or there was another time where this sort of thing happened where uh, you read about it in 2 Kings 19. Uh, under King Hezekiah, the Assyrian army had, had attacked Israel and besieged the city and uh, it looked like Israel was just going to be wiped off the planet. It looked like they were completely done for. And then, amazingly, God took out the whole Assyrian army one night in one single blow. It was just incredible. You can imagine the relief that they must have felt. You know, going out, seeing the whole Assyrian army wiped out. They would have gone out with shouts of joy. There would have been laughter. And see, this psalm, it could be talking about either of those events. But as it often, often is in the psalms, these kind of things are, are described in such broad brushstrokes that it could be any situation, <clears throat> any past restoration that God has provided his people. And that's actually very helpful for us as readers because it means that we can relate to the feeling that's expressed in these psalms. You know, if you've ever experienced the Lord's restoration in any kind of way, you can instantly relate to what these words are saying. You can, you know, you can say, we were like those who dream. You know, we went out with shouts of joy and laughter. And do you know there's a sense in which every single person who is saved by Jesus knows this exact experience? Because every single person who's saved by Christ knows what it feels like to be released from captivity, okay? to, be, to be saved from being under the sentence of death. Because before we come to Christ, what were we? We were captive to, to sin. We were under the sentence of eternal death. And yet God in his grace sent a saviour. Jesus went to the cross, took the punishment we deserved and set us free. And so we know this experience of being restored. We know what it feels like to being completely done for. And yet incredibly, unexpectedly, God rescues us. Uh, you know, even though we didn't deserve, didn't deserve it. But this is God acting in grace to restore his people. And see, when it first dawns on you, 
what God has done in the cross, then these words become yours. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. See, I wonder, do you all here know that experience? Do you know what it feels like to be released from captivity? To be saved from being under the sentence of death? Do you know that for yourself? Have you experienced that? The laughter that comes with salvation, the joy of salvation. Because it really is a joy beyond your wildest dreams. A joy that exceeds all other joys. You know that song we just sang? Did you, did you notice the line that was repeated right at the end? It said, Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but those of Zion know. See, it's saying that if you belong to Christ, you have a joy that you can't find anywhere else. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but those of Zion know. And so that's what we have in Christ. We, we literally have a joy beyond our wildest dreams. So what's the Christian life supposed to feel like? There you go. Joy, laughter. That's the first thing. But second, the psalm tells us that for all the joy that we have in Christ, we still have our share of sorrow. And that's why I call the second point a sorrow that's, that's almost the stuff of nightmares. And that is actually the experience that this psalm was written out of. Because it wasn't written in that time of great joy. That verses 1 to 3, remember, it's a memory. It's something that happened in the past. But where is the writer now? Well, that's what verse 4 reveals. Because although at the start, you know, he, he said, when the Lord restored our fortunes, we were laughing. But here he's, verse 1 now becomes a prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. See, things aren't as they should be. Things aren't as they would like to be. And we see when we look at verses 5 and 6 that this prayer, restore our fortunes, it's actually a prayer that's prayed with tears and with weeping. And so this psalm was actually written in a time of great sorrow and distress. And what that tells us is that no matter how much God does for us in the gospel, no matter how much joy and laughter we have in Christ, we still have sorrow. We still have weeping. You know, the gospel doesn't take away all of the sorrow just yet. Okay, until Christ comes again, this present life, it will be marked by sorrow. There will be weeping. Okay, you'll have your fair share of tears. See, tears are actually part of life in Christ until he comes again. And one way to think about this, if I can put it theologically um, for you, uh, one way to think about this is sometimes we talk about the now and not yet of the Christian life. Have you ever heard that, that saying? The, the now and the not yet of the Christian life. And so what it means is that the salvation that we have in Christ... There's a now aspect to it that we have, but there's also a not yet, that, you know, stuff that's still to come. So to give some examples, you know, right now we're saved by Christ. Now our sins are forgiven. Uh, we have a right standing with God now through Jesus. The power of sin 
is broken now. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit now. See, here, here's all these present experiences. These are all things that cause great joy. And yet there's a not yet aspect to salvation. So, for example, uh, not yet is the presence of sin removed. Not yet is this world liberated from the groans of the curse of sin. Uh, not yet have we received our glorified bodies. All of these things, they're things that are still to come. Things that we're longing for, looking forward to. Praying, restore us. <clears throat> and so, they're all things that are coming when Christ returns. But until then, we still live in a fallen world. We still live with fallen bodies. You know, the world, the flesh, the devil. They're still present realities that make life feel like a war at times. It's a battleground. And so one thing that is certain in this life is that while we have untold joys in the gospel, we also have untold sorrow. That is part of being or belonging to Christ. And see, some of you know that only too well. Some of you have been through very distressing times, you know, times of many tears. Uh, some of you still have something that, that weighs you down, something that still uh, hurts very deeply or something that keeps you awake at night, some personal struggle that maybe only you or, or a handful of people know about. See the sorrows. <clears throat> And, you know, we can actually experience that sorrow as a community as well. A community of sorrow. Uh, this, you know, if you notice, this is actually a, a communal prayer. It's not talking about me and my, it's saying, our, restore our fortunes, Lord. And see, as, as God's people, God's church, living in a world that is hostile to God, that hostility sometimes is directed toward the church. And so the church can go through difficult and dark times. As a community, we can grieve together. And uh, perhaps we've you know, been shielded from that sort of thing for a long time in the West. But if you think about churches today that are in countries where there is real persecution, you know, where one day they've got a church building, they're meeting for worship, and then the next week it's all burnt down and, and half of the congregation is slaughtered. You, know, you, you can see the grieving, the sorrow that comes from belonging to Christ. And who knows, maybe we will go through something like that in the future. Maybe we'll be crying out, Lord, restore our fortunes. In fact, when we think about it like that, we can actually see there is a sense in which life in Christ even increases sorrow. There are aspects of life that become more sorrowful because we have Jesus. So, you know, for example, um, to be united to Christ is to be united in his sufferings. And part of that means that the, the hatred that the world had for him that will also come to us. Uh, being part of Christ's body, the church, that, that means now our, our affections are actually tied up with Jesus, tied up with what he is doing in the world. And so when we see the church under fire or when we see uh, the church being overrun by worldliness or by uh, indifference to the things of God, that causes sorrow. You know, we don't just go shrug our shoulders. 
We grieve. We grieve for the body of Christ. And not only that, as individuals, the sorrow of sin is something that we now experience like never before. See, before you're converted, sin, sin is just this abstract thing. It doesn't really matter. Well, so it seems. But then when you become a Christian, when you, when you come to Christ, you now see the depravity of your own heart in a way like you've never seen it before. And so when you do sin, and we do, that's just not some abstract thing. That's actually, we're now sinning against the one who went to the cross for us. And so that causes sorrow. And if we're in Christ, you know, we now have friends and family, and when they reject the gospel, we can feel like the Apostle Paul, the way he talks about his own kinsmen in Romans 9, where he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. See, these are all factors in which life in Christ even increases sorrow. And there are times when that sorrow will even overshadow the joy. Uh, times when, when life feels so dry, you know, almost spiritually dry. And that experience is actually captured in verse 4, the second half of verse 4. See how the prayer is, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev. Uh, I think it's pronounced Negev. But what, what is the Negev? It's actually a desert region south of Jerusalem, a place where virtually nothing grew most of the time, completely barren. And that desert, the writer thinks of that, and that, that kind of captures the experience, this, this feeling of dryness. You know, when sorrows come in, there's a sense in which life just feels so barren and dry, you know, where you long for it to change. And that's what the prayer is saying. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And uh, you see, there would be times when, uh, you know, that, that desert area, there were mountains just north of that um, desert, and occasionally it would rain a lot in those mountains. And all of that rain, it would slowly collect into um, gullies and form into streams, and then those streams would run down the mountain and then into the desert and fill all the little, the low-lying areas in that desert. And what would happen almost overnight is that the desert would just be transformed into a paradise. All of the places where water goes, you know, these plants would just spring up rapidly and, and then flower and there'd be wildlife returning. It would be like a paradise almost overnight. And see, that's what the psalmist is longing for God to do. You know, in all of the spiritual dryness, Lord, act powerfully, do something unexpected, turn things around, take away the sorrow. And see, that's something that we instinctively do, don't we, when we're in trouble. You know, when sorrow comes, what do we do? We cry out to God to do what? Change the situation, Lord. Take away the sorrow. Okay? Change our circumstances. Do it now. And sometimes God does. Okay? Just like those times in the past, you know, bringing them out of captivity, uh, saving them from the Assyrian army. Sometimes God acts bang, dramatic, unexpected. But what about those times when he doesn't? What about those times when there is no unexpected sudden deliverance? What do we do then? 
And that brings us to the third thing that we see in this psalm, which is showing us how to handle our sorrow, what to do in our sorrows. And this, I think this is where the psalm is most helpful uh, because it shows us that although God does occasionally deliver us in unexpected ways, uh, but his usual way of dealing with us is through a very long, drawn-out process that actually feels like sowing and reaping. Okay, God's usual way of dealing with us through a long process that feels like sowing and reaping. And that's what you see in verses 5 and 6. So look at those verses. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, for people back then who um, literally lived off the land, uh, in order to have a storage of food, they didn't have um, IGA or... Um, Audi and that, they, they actually they had to store grain. And the way to get grain was at the right time of year they had to sow the seed and then wait many, many months and then, provided it's a, you know, the rains fall at the right time, um, there will be a harvest. And see, harvest time back then was a time of incredible joy because it meant there was food for the year. You're not going to starve to death. And so you could imagine the celebration that would go on every time they harvested all this grain and brought it all home. Exciting times. Uh, and that was a common experience. But, but what's interesting about this uh, psalm, or what's unusual, is notice the ones who are sowing, they're doing it in tears and weeping. So what does that mean? The farmer goes out weeping, sowing tears. What's that? Uh, what's it communicating? Now, what... What is the sowing? Are they actually sowing the tears themselves or are the tears watering what was sown? It's not really that clear. But what is clear is that it's a picture of tears being the very means through which comes a future harvest of joy. In other words, there's a way for your tears to be sown or to be invested in a way that brings about fruitfulness and growth. And that leads to almost like a picture of harvest, you know, joy, shouts of joy. So think about it. All of the tears that you shed, all of the tears that you will shed in life, you know, all of the disappointments you're going to go through, all of the suffering, all the hardship, all of the trials, the tragedy, the great loss, or the struggle with persistent sin. You know, all of the tears that come from these things, there's a way of investing those tears so that they produce a harvest of joy. And, you know, that, that's really exciting because what often happens with our tears or what, what we tend to do is that we tend to actually add pain to the sorrow by responding in the wrong way. Uh, so, for example, in any disappointment or, or sorrow, it's very easy to do what? To become angry, to become bitter, to even become hostile to the very idea of joy. Uh, you know, we can, we can feel hard done by. We can feel like we deserve better than this. You know, that this is some kind of you know, cosmic injustice. Or we can go the other way of becoming very disillusioned and cynical. Uh, we decide that it's best just to 
you know, not care anymore. Just give up. But look, this psalm, it's saying, there's a way for your tears, rather than becoming cynical or angry and bringing more pain, there's actually a way for them to be invested so that they produce something joyful. You know, like putting them into the ground and waiting for that day where they grow, where they turn into something that's life-giving. In fact, that picture of the the desert, that's what it feels like sowing uh, seeds. It feels like, you know, putting them into um, dry, dusty dirt, waiting for that day when the refreshing streams of mercy will finally come. So what what is it then? What does it mean, or what does it look like to actually sow your tears? Well, the psalm, the very nature of the psalm actually gives us the answer. Because what the psalm is, is doing that very thing, sowing tears. See, what is this psalm? It's a song. It's a song that people sang as they went to those festivals. It's a song that we sing as we travel through life. But it's also a prayer. A prayer that God would act. And that's what sowing in tears actually is. this is a song or a prayer that is about processing pain as an act of worship. That's what most of the Psalms are. Processing pain in the very act of worship. And uh, so we're being taught how to worship God in our weeping. How to look to Him by faith. So that instead of allowing our tears to become angry or cynical or bitter, to actually allow them to become cries to God, you know, looking to Him by faith. So the way to sow your tears is to pray them. Okay? You turn weeping into praying. That's what it means, to sow in tears. And this psalm is essentially saying, like the Bible so often does, you reap what you sow. So if you're sowing unbelief, what will you reap? bitterness and more sorrow. You sow in faith, what will you reap? Abundant joy. That's how it works. And in fact, how does that work? Why is it that there's a guarantee here that that when you sow in tears, you will reap with joy? Why is it that we can be certain that God won't just leave us in our sorrow? Now, why can we be confident that when we put our tears into the dry dust, that the streams of mercy will actually come. How can we be sure of that? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Think of Jesus. You know, if ever there was someone who sowed in tears, it was Jesus. Because when he came, what do we see? We see him weeping over Jerusalem. We see him weeping over the, the way sin and Satan and death, what, what sin and Satan and death have done to humanity. Now, one of the shortest verses in the Bible is Jesus wept. You know, when, he, when he was at the funeral of a close friend and he looked at death and tears flowed. You know, Isaiah called Jesus a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But see, the place where we see Jesus' grief the most is actually at the cross. Remember on that that night, leading up to the cross, what did Jesus say? 
He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then when he was on the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why did Jesus cry so much? What are all his tears about? And again, Isaiah gives us the answer. He says, surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. What does that mean? Well, from the context of that verse, what it means is that Jesus got the weeping, he got the tears that we deserved. He took them in our place. That's what it's saying. That's the context of Isaiah is all about that. And uh, what are those tears that we deserved? What's the weeping that we deserved? Well, Jesus himself told us more than anyone else. He said that all of the sin, all of the unbelief, do you know what that leads to? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, how many parables finish with that, that people are cast out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? What's that about? It's a terrifying picture of hell. But that is actually what we deserve for our sin. We deserve that eternal weeping. But see, when Jesus went to the cross, when we see him carrying our tears, when we see him bearing our sorrows, what's he doing? He's taking that weeping that we deserve for our sin and paying for it in full. That's why Isaiah, in the very next verse, goes on to say he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. See, Jesus got the eternal weeping that we deserve so that we can get the eternal joy that he deserved. And that's why this psalm can contain this solid guarantee that the end sound from your life will not be weeping, but will be a shout of joy, a joy that will go on forever. See, verse 5 and 6 doesn't say, you know, those who sow in tears might reap with joy. It says you shall reap with joy because you actually reap what Christ has sown. Okay, he's the one who secures it. The joy of our salvation was actually sown in his tears. And so that when he comes again, when Jesus comes again, he's like the one in verse 6, coming home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. What's the sheaves? It's all of those that he's redeemed by his blood. And so in Christ, there is this guarantee that even if sorrow persists in your life right to the end, or even if um, you know, the, the church looks like, like it's a desert place, not much happening, the tears are not the final end. Weeping is not the final sound. The final sound is shouts of joy. And it's the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that guarantee it to everyone who believes. Because just as Christ rose again, so too will you rise. And that will be the shout of joy that goes on forever. Do you see? That's why we could read earlier in um, 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentarily, uh, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of gl glory beyond all comparison. And if you know that Jesus has secured that for you, you know that turning to him in your tears is the only place that you can go where, where it will actually lead to joy. Okay, anywhere else you turn, it will only increase the sorrow. 
Okay, don't turn to the bottle, don't turn to just more and more entertainment or blocking things out. Turn to Christ. Okay, turn the tears into prayers to Him. And the result will be harvest of joy. Right, so we began by asking, what does the Christian life feel like? What does it feel like to be united to Christ? Well, here it is. Exhilarating joy. Crushing sorrow. They're both in there. Okay, you're not weird <laughs> if you experience sorrow. Okay, there's not something wrong. It is part of it. But what's the final answer? What's the final word? Shouts of joy forever. That's the Christian life. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the way that it, it captures uh, what life really feels like for uh, those united to Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that we can sing about the, um, the, the wonderful restoration that you have brought about uh, for Zion, for all of your people, for, uh, across all of the ages, where, uh, where Christ, right at the centre of history, has gone to that cross and borne our griefs and our sorrows. And when he wept, uh, he was bearing our griefs, our, our sin on his shoulders and paying for all that we have done against you so that we can have his joy, the, the eternal joy of being in him forever. Father, help us in, our, uh, in the times where we feel very spiritually dry or where we feel overwhelming sorrow uh, to not lose heart, to not turn away, but rather to turn to you, uh, to sow those tears and Father, we know that the end result will be joy. So we pray, Lord, that um, even through that, that we would already see um, uh, the, these yeah, joy sprouting up in our lives, even in the midst of sorrow. And we thank you, Father, that we can always look back to what Christ has done for us and always be reminded of, of how wonderful it is to be uh, someone saved by grace. So help us to keep looking forward with that expectation of one day seeing him face to face. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.